off. And by the way, the big story, certainly one of the biggest stories of the day today, deals with fully vaccinated Canadians who are, many of them, are good and ready to get the heck out of Dodge. And the federal government announced a modification, not a massive change, but a modification to our rules with respect to persons who are fully vaccinated. Here's the federal minister of health, Patty Haidu. Beginning on July 5th, full vaccinated, fully vaccinated travelers who are permitted to enter Canada will no longer be subject to the federal requirement to quarantine. Fully vaccinated travelers will not be required to take a COVID-19 test on day eight or stay at a government authorized hotel. Okay, now that's half of the package. Claire Newell will join us in a, in a second to give us some perspective on this. But here's the minister again talking about persons who are not fully vaccinated. For travelers who are not fully vaccinated, I want to remind you that there are no changes to Canada's current border measures, and you must continue to adhere to the current testing and federal quarantine requirements. And whether you're fully vaccinated or not, if you're coming into Canada, it is crucial to plan in advance to ensure you're meeting all travel requirements. Okay, now Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets joining us, our travel expert in-house here. Claire, good afternoon. Uh, Not too much of a surprise, I suppose, with the content of the announcement. Did the timing surprise you at all? No, I think we were expecting that this announcement would come down today and that they had kind of given us a little bit of a heads up saying that it would be early July for this first little um, restriction to be lowered. I just want to be clear, Sterling, though, this advisory uh, that we still have um, as, you know, Canadian citizens, we still have the advisory for non-essential travel internationally and to the U.S., just to remind you, that's still in place until at least July 21st. So this is a slow start. This will be, as Patty Haidu mentioned, um, fully vaccinated travelers who are already permitted to enter. So those are Canadian citizens, PR, people who are international students, uh, essential workers. Mm-hmm. They won't need to do what we've had to do for many months now, which is do that mandatory hotel quarantine, which has been really really expensive, um, around the $1,200 mark on average, nor do they have to test on day eight. What is going to become, I think, the new norm, and I think that we'll have uh, an announcement as to what's going to happen for international and travel to the U.S. after July 21st, but I don't think that the pre-departure, that's the flight home back to Canada, I don't think anything's going to change. I think you're going to need to get that test and on arrival. You'll also have to use that ArriveCan app. So, The other part of this is that they're still only keeping four airports available, uh, Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto and Montreal for international flights. And there was a big reminder to, um, you know, again, they they strongly advise to avoid non-essential travel. So it's not just for, you know, you and I going across the border now or as of, uh, sorry, July the 5th um, or, or business travelers. Don't start planning those trips. Um, But it is giving. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to ask because, uh, you know, there are people, uh, suppose now I'm a fully mm-hmm. vaccinated person and right. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a Vancouver area resident, but I've got a property down there in Birch Bay that I haven't been able to go to for over a year. So now as of July 5th and I am fully vaccinated, will I be allowed to finally go down and see what's left of my property in Birch Bay? It's not mine, by the way, but I have a friend in this predicament. Yeah. Now, that is something that people are are really anxious and eager to do if they can possibly do it. And they, I believe, will be able to do it. Uh Uh, But it is going to be it's not encouraged 
they're advising against the non-essential. If they could wait a little bit longer, I think it'll be, um, much, it'll be not encouraged, but it will be much easier to do mm-hmm. post July the the twenty first. So they do. They made it clear also that there's going to be two separate lines. There will be those that are vaccinated and those that are non-vaccinated, and that's not just to you know mark you as vaxxed or not it's because there's different requirements and restrictions so that all has to be done and they'll get i think some practice they'll start it slowly mm-hmm. and then they will allow a bit more because at this stage of the game you know no one's coming in either this is non-essential travel out from outside canada um right. is still discouraged Claire, we're going to go down to uh, Bellingham and talk to immigration lawyer uh, 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 Les Saunders down, Len Saunders down there in a few minutes. And I want right. one of the things I want to bring up with Len is is a question I have for you before I let you go. Mm-hmm. It's this Arrive Can app that you've right. been talking about so very much here on NW over the past few weeks. But here's the question: Suppose I get this uh, this Arrive Can app, and I've got a, a thing on my phone that says I am a fully vaccinated Canadian kind of human being. And I come up to the border. I'm going down to the border to the United States. And uh, the border agent says to me, are you fully vaccinated? I say, sure, prove it. And I hand him my phone with my ArriveCan app documentation on it. And he doesn't want to give it back to me because he doesn't have to. So what about that? I know. I I have the very same question. I'd be eager to hear what he has to say because I have told anyone who has been vaccinated, especially once they're fully vaccinated, to take the card that they get or any documentation, whether it's a paper slip, make sure that that is you've photocopied. Do not laminate that, okay? that The actual card needs to be, the physical card may need to be shown. What they're oh. saying is that it needs to be uploaded as well into the Arrive Can app. I also suggest that you take a picture and keep it on your phone. Cover yourself 10 ways to Sunday with okay. that card, just like you would with your passport. Um, but I, I, I don't know what the, I, I suppose that the Canadian government will work with the U.S. border agents to make sure that they know what to look for, because obviously that border is enormous and it is mm-hmm. vital and they will need to be trained to, to be able to know what is acceptable and what's not. That's right, but, because as it stands right now, if you if they demand your phone, uh, you have to turn it over, and they can take as much of their sweet time as they like to go through your phone, and they will give it back to you when they feel like it. And that's, that's all right. you can do is stand there with twiddling your thumbs. And I'd feel much, much um, better handing my card to them, my vaccine Mm -hmm. card. And we all have them. But again, that's like gold. So you like your passport. You want to make sure that they're kept together in a very, very safe place and that you have multiple copies of them. Interesting stuff. Well, it's a it's a step. It's a baby step, but baby it's one is. But if you've talked about with Jill here and, and with me on the weekends, it's a step that we were pretty much expecting. Much much frustration on the other side of the border. Mm-hmm. Lots of members of Congress calling for America to unilaterally open up. And by way of response to that, the White House made sure it stayed closed until the twenty first of <laughs> July. So much for those independent rogue uh, Congress people. But right. uh, it, it is a step in the right direction. Isn't Yeah, it was big news to start the week. So, you know, right now, just grateful for for some baby steps. 
Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett on this very warm Monday noon hour. Nice to have you along with us. A new survey by the people at Restaurants Canada indicate rising food costs are affecting already razor-thin margins in that industry. According to restaurants themselves, the jump is anywhere between 10 rather and 30%, depending on the type of food. This after a year that's already been less than ideal, to say the very least, for most restaurants right across Canada. Here to talk about it is Mark Von Schowitz, Vice President of Restaurants Canada for Western Canada. He's based here in Vancouver. Mark, good afternoon. Welcome back. Good afternoon, Sterling. Pleasure to be here. It's good to have you with us, Mark. This, uh, of course, is is uh, not the sort of news we are to be surprised by anymore. But boy, oh boy, it's just been such a rough crawl back for the restaurant industry. And in some parts of Canada, they're not even back yet to the extent that we are here in B.C. And they're dealing with limited capacity. They've got some patio stuff going on to help balance that off. But they're dealing with a, a persistent increase in almost all their food costs inevitably that's going to have to be passed along to the consumers don't you think well certainly some of it is and it's not just the food costs of course we've had a a big minimum wage increase especially for liquor servers which has to be factored in as well which is going Mm -hmm. to increase our labor costs uh, and as well as food costs as well. However, we are a really competitive industry, and and uh, usually our restaurant members do everything possible to get that value back to to consumers. But um, you know, and we're also coming off a year where there wasn't a lot of uh, menu inflation last year during the lockdowns, and uh, so uh, it's natural to a degree that we're going to have some of this inflation happening. Uh, and of course, it's just one more thing that we're really concerned about. It with uh, our last survey indicating that still we've got about. 80% of our members that are just barely breaking even or losing money uh, every single month. So what we've done is, you know, effective July 4th already, we're going to have the really important wage subsidies and rent subsidies. So we just issued a release and we're asking people to join our Restaurant Survival Coalition and go to supportrestaurants.ca to get a postcard off to your MP, uh, basically saying that for our sector, we need some sort of bridging gap uh, to get us through uh, this next transition stage from survival to revival. Uh, and without it, you know, we still have a lot of our members that are just on the edge and are worried about closing permanently if they uh, can't get to some normal operations. And even with that, they're saying with that debt, it's going to take a long time. In fact, we're not saying till 2023. Are we yeah. going to get back to those 2019 sales numbers? Now, a lot of restaurants, as you mentioned, Mark, relying very heavily on these subsidy programs provided, rent subsidies and wage subsidies provided by the government of Canada, some of which are beginning to be scaled back very soon within the next couple of weeks on July 4th. Uh, This would not be the best time for the struggling restaurant industry. I'm assuming there's a a concerted effort to delay that, uh, that date. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, we're hearing this right across the country from members, and it doesn't really matter when you're reopening or not reopening. Uh, we're still going to be in a, in a very difficult period for the next number of months. And, and you know, consumer confidence is a big issue as well, where uh, while we're anticipating some pent-up demand, people coming out to the restaurants again, is that sustainable as people have changed their dining habits, doing mm-hmm. more takeout and delivery, that type of yep. thing? Uh, so it's going to be a while before we can get back to uh, some 
some sort of a semblance of normal. And what we're saying, I think it's in the government's own best interest to make sure that we're successful as the third largest private sector employer in the province to hire back people and make sure that we survive. So uh, we're certainly asking for the provincial government to support our efforts with the federal government as well to, to get them going. And the other thing, Sterling, which I think is important, is let's do no harm either with any new regulations or things that are going to come up in the coming months that are going to add even more cost to the industry. We, we certainly need some runway to, to get back to uh, some sort of profitability. Sure. We're hearing things like a high shipping costs, increase in uh, grain prices, uh, supply chain delays, which we're all aware of the world over, are all contributing to uh, the cause to causing these uh, food prices across the board here in Canada to increase. Are those the reasons that your people are telling you inside the restaurant biz too, Mark? Yes, very much so. I mean, uh, costs of everything from labor to food are going up. And uh, at some point, uh, members are going to have to pass off some of those uh, costs on to their uh, customers. But uh, they're very reluctant to do so right now. They want to keep everything as attractive as possible to, to get their dining guests back in the restaurant. So, uh, well, sure. uh, you know, we're, 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 I think, going to be in a period right now where it is going to be inflationary and you know, as we come out of the pandemic. Uh, but uh, we're just asking all your listeners to please support the industry. Send a postcard to your member of parliament. Uh, go to supportrestaurants.ca. And, and uh, because without these important wage subsidies, what we don't want to see is a second wave of closures and, and the layoffs that'll come with that in the fall if, uh, if we have a lot of these indebted restaurants that don't survive. Yeah, and on your website, restaurantscanada.org, you've got all sorts of testimonials because you represent thousands of restaurateurs right across the country. And I'm just looking at one quote from one BC entrepreneur uh, in Nanaimo. Uh, Sharon says, the wage and rent subsidies are what are keeping many afloat in these treacherous waters. Please do what you can to keep us afloat. And it's, uh, it's not charity. It's just sustainability for another short period of time. Are you thinking Labor Day, Mark, before they start tapering them off? Would that help? Uh, any sort of delays before they start taking off the wage subsidy for our sector would be very much appreciated. And what we've specifically asked for is that uh, for our industry specifically, that they push this back till April of 2022. By oh, okay. that time, we think we'll be in a profitable situation again, where we no longer need those subsidies to keep us afloat uh, going forward. So, and the other thing that I think is an important member ask on this is perhaps some debt forgiveness in some of these programs, because they've just got such a huge debt hangover right now it's going to take them many 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 months to to pay those debts back yeah uh, final question to you mark and we're grateful for your time especially at lunchtime <laughs> on, on a monday <laughs> afternoon uh the uh, the owners the, the of the restaurant the the people in the business the people assuming all the risk are simply asking for a little more time that's what this boils down to just a little more time please Exactly. Well said. And and I think, uh, you know, the quote that you just said from a member, I mean, I'm hearing hundreds of these uh, restaurateurs calling saying exactly that. Just give us a bit more time, get us some time to get back on our feet, to get into a profitable situation again. And they just want to make sure that everybody understands that this does take time. And, you know, we were the first in and are going to probably be the last ones other than the tourism industry to get out of the pandemic. And we're going to need a little bit more help just to get us uh, through that transition from survival to revival. 
And finally, Mark, uh, you mentioned the public support, and you're not 100% sure that it's going to stay constant. Certainly the pent-up demand that you refer to is very much there. But uh, on balance here in BC, where we've been a little looser with our restrictions and our regulations, there has been, I think, pretty positive, pretty strong public support doing what we can. What are you hearing from BC restaurateurs vis-a-vis public support? Yeah, very, very impressed. And, you know, we see these public polling numbers where only 40% of people are still, uh, you know, uh, feeling confident going out to restaurants again. But I think in BC, we've actually done better than that. I really appreciate all British Columbians showing their support, even with takeout and delivery, through this whole pandemic. It's been a long 15 months, and certainly we would not have had anywhere near as many restaurants survive without the generous support of British Columbians for gift cards and takeout and delivery. And now we're asking them to please get out there and once again go to your local restaurant uh they need your support and i think uh uh, you know there's a lot of people myself included that look forward to those great social interactions at uh, during a restaurant meal with friends and family you got it man and it's the first day of summer mark your timing is outstanding it's going to be a fabulous patio week here in uh, metro vancouver and on vancouver island so a, a glorious opportunity to support the restaurant business thanks for your time today we always appreciate it My pleasure, Sterling. Thank you. Sterling Fox with you on this very warm Monday afternoon. It's 28. I'm in working from home here, and CKNW, at least for the next couple of hours, is back in New Westminster, where at this moment, it's 28 degrees, and it'll hit the 30s already in the Valley. We'll check those final results a little later on. Jody, I'll have some probably close to record-setting numbers for you uh, later in the afternoon. Uh, Speaking of the Valley, it's, uh, it's back. The Abbotsford International Air Show is back, well, with a modified approach. They have something called SkyDrive 2021 to talk about today. Dave Reith is with us this afternoon. Dave is the operations manager with the Abbotsford International Air Show. He's the guy behind SkyDrive 21. Dave, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Sterling. It's, uh, it's certainly looking like air show weather out there today, isn't it? It's perfect. I mean, I've been to the air show many times. Uh, I'm a big fan, as you know. Had a had a ride twice with the Snowbirds out of Abbotsford over the years, Dave. I'm a huge fan, and I can remember more than a few air shows being at least this warm, if not a touch warmer. That's right. the uh, The second weekend in August, when we usually hold the event, is is quite often one of the hottest weekends of the year. So uh, we're looking forward to hopefully that again this year. So let's talk about what didn't happen last year. The whole shooting match was canceled, wasn't it, Dave? Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, the uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic forced us to uh, to cancel our live event last year um, and uh, and hold it a virtual online air show uh, event instead. Which I know uh, a number of people did watch, which was mm-hmm. great. But uh, nothing replaces the real thing. That's right. Uh, so let's talk about SkyDrive because this is this is better than nothing, and it's a modified. It's a COVID nineteen protocol. Abbotsford Air Show. So talk about SkyDrive because you get the impression you're turning the Abbotsford Air Show into a giant drive-in theater. Yeah, that's exactly right. SkyDrive is uh, is basically a a giant drive-in air show. So much like a a drive-in movie theater that most people are familiar with, we're going to turn the whole airfield here at uh, the Abbotsford International Airport into a giant drive-in air show theater. Um, unlike a, a drive-in movie theater, though, uh, you'll be able to get out of your vehicle. That's one of the, the common questions we get. And uh, if, you, if you come to SkyDrive, you'll get a, a 20 by 20 space uh, on the airfield, which is uh, completely dedicated to you and, and your family. 
Uh, mm-hmm. so that's where you'll park your vehicle and then set up your lawn chairs or blankets or, uh, or whatever else you'd like to sit on to watch the show beside your vehicle. So the uh, so we're back to the old admission by the carload approach. How many individuals per vehicle? Yeah, that's right. Some of our older fans will remember that the air show used to be that was the only ticket you could buy was a carload yeah, uh, a carload right. pass. So in recent years or, or recent decades, I guess we've moved to a more uh, more individualistic uh, ticket approach. But yeah, the driving show is back to carloads only. So every ticket is good for one vehicle and up to six people inside that vehicle. So uh, you'll be able to bring your your family or or some friends uh, and up to six people uh, can come in each vehicle. Okay, and each each drive-in site, each vehicle parking spot is 20 by 20. So the spacing uh, and the distancing is already figured or factored into uh, where people are going to go. And there are various ticket prices depending on how close to the show line you want to be, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the, the whole event plan is built around being a safe event, uh, even though we're, we're hopefully nearing the end of, of uh, COVID-19 uh, and the situation it's caused. Uh, it's still important that, uh, that we're being safe and abiding by the, the guidelines that the health authority has given us. So that 20 by 20 space ensures that you've got enough space for your vehicle and, and a good amount of space for, for you to sit beside it and watch the car and be, equal, uh, be safely spaced from, from other attendees. Uh, regarding tickets, yeah, you're absolutely right. We've, uh, we've designed the tickets so that uh, there's a, a range of prices, ranging right. from a very economic ticket um, up to a little bit of a, a more expensive ticket if you want to be right up at the front show line. So mm-hmm. there's, four different, there's four different zones you can purchase. Um, you can purchase a, a front row seat, which is a guaranteed spot on the very front show line, and then it, uh, it cascades back from there in terms of pricing. And so prices range from anywhere from about $100 a ticket up to $200 a ticket if you want the, the very front show line. It's funny, it just jogged my memory there, Dave, about the old, uh, the old car load stuff, because sometimes... There were people in the trunk. You may remember those days. Uh, back to the uh, the reality of 2021 here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about camping, for example. Now, that used to be a thing, Dave. You could take your RV. You could go out to the air show, find yourself a nice little corner, park it for a couple of days, and relax. Is that the case this year? Unfortunately not, Sterling. Uh, again, due to the health restrictions that we're working within, we're not able to operate the air show campground this year. Um, it's actually not a, a bygone thing. We've been operating the Airshow Campground right up to the last live show we held in 2019. And in fact, right. 2018 and 2019 were the busiest the campground's ever been. So we do know that that's a very popular area. And I imagine it would have been even more popular this year with the rise of popularity of camping and mm-hmm. RVing. But oh, yeah. unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, just due to the health restrictions that we have to work within um, to hold our drive-in event, uh, we're not able to operate the campground this year. But we look forward to bringing it back in 2022 when we're, knock on wood, hopefully back to our full festival format. Well, let's talk about 2022 because, Dave, uh, if you've got a gift certificate, for example, if you were given a gift certificate to the air show um, for, for last year, that, of course, was did not happen. Would those be honored next year? I'm sorry, this summer? Or are they be going to be honored in 2022? I tweaked on 22 when you said it because I think I read something about that. Yeah, so there's two different groups uh, I'll address. The first is if you had a ticket uh, to our 2020 event that was canceled uh, and didn't request a refund from us last summer, uh, you would have received an email over the last week with instructions on how to use your ticket credit for either SkyDrive tickets or for those who didn't want to attend SkyDrive, uh, how to carry your credit over to 2022's uh, air show. 
Okay. And then there's another group of folks who have gift certificates. Um, and our gift certificates are all very specific for certain types of tickets, whether it be a general admission ticket or a reserved seating ticket um, or a chalet ticket. So unfortunately for those folks, uh, we do ask that those uh, folks hang on to those gift certificates and we will honor them when we return to our full format next year. Okay. And again, I'm just getting through all the technical details. Again, as is typical with most events this summer, Dave, uh, people will be asked to get their tickets in advance online. There will be no ticket wickets at Abbotsford Air Show entrances. And with that in mind, what about walk-ins people or cyclists or motorcyclists for that matter? Absolutely. 100% of the, the tickets for this event will be sold in advance. To be completely honest, uh, because of the limited capacity of the event, we do expect it's going to sell out relatively quickly. So I we, do too, yeah. We, yeah, so we don't actually expect that uh, there would be any walk-up tickets available, even if you could get them. But yeah, okay. it is 100% advanced sale only. In terms of who can come, uh, we do the health restrictions again. We're not able to accommodate walk-in uh, or cyclists uh, for this event, and, and we feel really terrible about that, but it's just the restrictions that we've been given to work within. So it does have to be a drive-in vehicle. Motorcycles are allowed, though. So okay. uh, we're, we're honoring up to, up to the same six-person maximum. So you could have up to three motorcycles with six people on board. Uh, use one ticket for SkyDrive. Ah, oh, I see. So they, they can sh- uh, up to uh, a certain amount of people can share a com- on motorcycles can share a common parking spot. Yeah, basically, you know, we assume that if you were coming with motorcycles, it's the equivalent of, of coming in one vehicle, but obviously you're limited to the two seats uh, the motorcycle sure. can handle. So, yeah, yeah three, three motorcycles can use a single ticket. They just have to arrive together at the same time with the ticket. Okay. Now, I uh, only got a couple of minutes left here, Dave, but to tantalize us, tease us a little bit. Tell us about the highlights, the big hits you've already booked into the show that we can really uh, look forward to seeing out there in Abbotsford uh, in August. Absolutely. We are extremely fortunate to have an incredible performer lineup for SkyDrive 2021 already. Uh, headlining the show are going to be the Canadian Forces Snowbirds, who are celebrating their, fi- yeah, celebrating their 50th anniversary season this year, which is a huge deal. They're one of the longest-running national aerobatic teams in the world. Uh, and in that time, they have never missed an Abbotsford International Air Show. So we're extremely thrilled to have them back celebrating their 50th season with us. Uh, and also co-headlining the show is going to be the U.S. Air Force's F-22 Raptor, which is the world's most advanced fifth-generation fighter jet. Uh, ah. Again, a huge, a huge uh, fighter jet that's going to be very exciting for the crowd. We also have the Royal Canadian Air Force's CF-18 Hornet demo team, which I know is a fan favorite here at Abbotsford, uh, as well as the U.S. Navy's Super Hornet uh, dem- demonstration team. They're also going to be here. Um, so those four uh, military performers are going to be headlining the show. Um, and then we have a, a, a lineup of civilian performers already announced, including an airplane called the Yak-110, which quite honestly is one of the most unique aircraft I've ever seen in my life. It's actually two Russian Yak-55 aerobatic airplanes welded together with really? a jet engine strapped to the middle. <laughs> so wow. it does... It does aerobatics that, that literally have to be seen to be believed. Uh, it looks like two aircraft in extremely close formation, but is in fact a single aircraft with a jet engine in the middle. So that, we've got uh, that Yak-110 coming, uh, as well as a host of other civilian performers. Uh, people can check out our website at abbotsfordairshow.com to see the performers already announced. And okay. then we'll be making some more performer announcements in the coming uh, days and weeks. 
And uh, um, one of the big hits that I've no- noticed in the past, and I'm just fascinated by the technology involved, uh, was the stealth aircraft. One of the United States uh, uh, Air Force stealth planes was was in Abbotsford a few years ago. I was frankly surprised they were going public with that kind of technology, but it was absolutely fascinating to take a, a look at. It, are, are any stealth aircraft back this year, Dave? Yeah, Abbotsford has a rich history of bringing stealth aircraft from the United States here. We've, uh, for again, some of the, the fans who've been coming for years will remember the SR-71 in the 80s making appearances at Abbotsford and the F-117 yes. Nighthawk also making appearances. The F-22 Raptor is the United States' most advanced stealth aircraft to date. So uh, that F-22 Raptor represents uh, not only the premium capabilities of an air-to-air superiority fighter, but also the, the most modern stealth uh, technology available. So uh, there won't be any uh, static display aircraft on the ground, but people will be able to see what uh, stealth looks like in the air uh, through the F-22 Raptor. Yeah, exactly. Well, you kind of answered my, my next question because, of course, the static displays was an opportunity for people. And, and you could meet some of the, the personnel involved with some of the aircraft and so on. But again, I guess that's a COVID thing that you just can't afford to, to, to hold uh, with risk involved, right? That's right. Again, it comes down to the uh, the restrictions of not only the health authority, but also the attending military organizations. Uh, they sure. also have their own restrictions that, that preclude them from doing static displays. So uh, so this year's event will be 100% drive-in, that 20 by 20 space we discussed. Uh, you will be restricted to watching the show from that area. There will be no other ground attractions that people are used to, like the static display or, or a, another thing to note is there will be no food vendors on site. So people are encouraged ah. to bring their own snacks, bring your own refreshments, uh, it is a dry event, so no alcohol, please, but you're welcome to bring your own sodas and waters and, and snacks to enjoy uh, right beside your vehicle. And there are plenty of washroom facilities at least still provided, correct? Absolutely. That is the one okay. amenity uh, we are still uh, providing. So there will be washrooms available for use, um, but other than uh, that, you'll, you'll need to remain in, in the area beside your vehicle. And bring your own food and no hooch. That's uh, that's part of the package this year. Sky Drive 2021 is what they're calling this year's version of the Abbotsford Air Show. Sounds kind of fun, Dave. Thanks for taking some time today to give us a, a look ahead to what's going on. And all the details, friends, are at abbotsfordairshow.com. And Dave, you've done a pretty good job on the website of answering all of those questions. You did a fine job of answering mine, too, sir. So thank you for both that this afternoon. Well, thanks for having me, Sterling. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. It's going to be a little different for those who have attended our show before, but I think in some ways different sometimes brings its own uh, excitement uh, as well. Exactly. Well, we wish you considerable success, and and I think you're right. I think you're not going to have any problem selling every ticket you've got available long before showtime rolls around. So good luck with that part too, Dave. We certainly hope so. Thanks, Sterling. Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett on this fabulous Monday afternoon. Lovely to have you along with us, enjoying the fine weather and uh, hopefully the program. Uh, this uh, this next half hour, I suspect you will find interesting because it's about your tax dollars and mine and who's running the show and keeping an eye on them. I'm quoting now from a column I saw recently in the Times Colonist in Victoria. Quote, in her 2021 budget, Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland made much of the alleged fact that despite a binge of COVID-19 spending and resulting massive deficits, Canada is well-placed compared with other Western countries. Specifically, she claimed that we have the lowest net debt ratio among the G7. Our next guest begs to differ. 
The author of the column in the Times Colonist is Laurie McFarland. Mr. McFarland is the former Deputy Minister of Health here in British Columbia, also former Deputy Minister of Education in Saskatchewan. The column is an opinion piece. It's not an editorial by the Times Colonist, but it certainly caught my attention, and I'm absolutely delighted Laurie McFarland agreed to join us on the radio this afternoon. Mr. McFarland, Laurie, welcome, and thanks for being with us. Thank you. I'm glad to do it. It's a pleasure. And uh, let's talk a little bit about why you disagree with Ms. Freeland's assertion that Canada has the lowest debt ratio among the G7. Well, here's how it works. She did indeed say that we have the lowest net debt. Our gross debt is 120% of GDP. And that means everything owned by the federal government, the provinces and municipalities added up together 120% of GDP. That's the fifth worst among the 25 developed countries, better only than the U.S., Italy, Portugal, and Japan. This is not the kind of company you want to keep. You get to net debt by subtracting any sellable assets like gold bullion, marketable, mm-hmm. marketable securities, and so on. And when Freeland does that, she says our net debt is just 33%, best among the G7. Not true. What she did is she brought into her accounting CPP and QPP assets worth half a trillion dollars. Right. That's grossly misleading because those funds are placed by law beyond the reach of government. They're for the benefit of retirees only. And you would think Freeland would know this because a liberal government wrote that law back in 1997. So, uh, Laurie, let me me just pause for a moment, sir, and make sure I understand the claim the minister is making. She's claiming that because of the massive assets of the Canada Pension Plan and the Quebec Pension Plan, Canada's debt is well-supported. And you maintain that by law, the Canada Pension Plan and the Quebec Pension Plan cannot in any way be attached to the national debt. Exactly. Um, That is exactly what the legislation that was written back in 1997 says. So why on earth do you suspect this kind of shuffling of the cups with the P under one of them is going on? Well, there are two ways of looking at this. Um, One is that other governments do take into account the assets of their pension plans. And so Freeland may pretend that she can get away with it. But other countries' pension plans are accounted for in a completely different manner. She's using other countries' accounting plans that do not apply here by law in order to pretend that we have a very low debt ratio and therefore we can go on a spending spree. Right. And, and of course, and again, I'm back to your column. Let me quote one more very brief sentence. Again, there is purpose in this deception. Freeland speaks for a government that has committed itself to nearly unprecedented levels of spending and borrowing. And that's the key, too, isn't it? Laurie, they're not just spending all this money. Every dime they're spending on all of these exotic programs is borrowed money. The last time this kind of thing happened was back in, 1990, uh, back in 1967 when we started def- running deficits. They ran for 30 years, and by the end of that, in 1997, every nickel that we borrowed was used to pay down interest. Not one nickel of that went for health or social services or anything else. It was a complete fiasco. That is where, according to the staff in the Federal Finance Ministry, that's where we're headed. We will have deficits till at least 20 
Well, and and uh, the other part about this, now the United States Federal Reserve has already announced, Lori, that we should uh, expect a couple of increases in interest rates in the United States in 2022. Yep. That's yep. very conservatively saying at least two uh, uh, experts in the field are saying that could easily mean three or four interest rate increases in one year. Uh, we are at rock bottom, historical, all-time low interest rate levels. There's a generation, Lori, uh, who who simply does not believe that interest rates could ever get to 15, 18, 20%. It's just yep. not possible. So yep. my point and your point as a former deputy minister in both British Columbia and Saskatchewan, keenly aware of budget limitations, is at every tick the interest rate goes up, decreases the government's ability to deliver on programs because it increases their borrowing costs, correct? Correct. And here's what's going to happen. Somebody once asked the bank robber, Willie Sutton, why he robbed banks. And he replied, because that's where the money is. (laughs) Well, once we run out of borrowing room, the only place that you can find savings that amount to anything at all is health, education, and social services. You could wipe out the entire rest of the B.C. government, and it wouldn't be enough. So once the clock stops ticking, we're going to see a starvation diet for our country's social services, and it will go on for decades. And this is, I suppose, the irony of it all, Laurie, is the fact that the they continue to, I mean, the election hasn't even begun. They've got a hundred billion dollars slush fund set aside to spend over the next five years, basically to buy votes sometime in 2021 when the election inevitably arrives. Uh, but they're, the programs that they're announcing won't be able to be afforded if indeed more money needs to be siphoned off to pay for our borrowing costs. And let it be said that that $100 million in slush funds is no part of any of the accounting we've just been through. It's on top of it all. Oh, is that right? Oh, so yeah. that's even beyond the number. So when the minister talks about our our, our low debt or our comparably manageable debt compared to our, our, our peers in the G7, uh, and, and of course, uh, fudging the numbers to accommodate that, it, it's really stretching the truth. Let me, let me quote one more, one more line. And I, I know you've written this stuff, Laurie, you know what I'm about to say, but for our listeners, let me put this. Uh, this amount of borrowing is being justified by a false premise, namely that our debt levels remain healthy and that is the real concern it's not merely a question of whether freeland is trying to fool us the larger issue is whether she and her colleagues are trying to fool themselves for down that road lies a very nasty ending close quote last line of the column lori foreboding ominous sort of forecast but very true inevitable one might say especially if we award them a majority well as things stand i suspect that's probably what's going to happen and at that point um we are headed look i ran a health ministry for some years you have no idea how difficult it is to find savings in, in, the, in this area now with an aging population, sure. with things like COVID on the, you know, ramping, ramping around and so forth. The, the ability that we have right now in our fiscal health to afford health services is it was basically not there. We, can't have, we don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough nurses. We're, mm-hmm. we're way behind on surgeries like um, hip and knee replacement. We can't even run the system in the way it should be run as things stand. If we take on borrowing of this level, and as you say, when interest rates go up, we're screwed. Mm-hmm. 
So now, they're, but they're so far down this road, Lori. It it looks as though they they they've sort of they they're hoisted on their own petard. In other words, they've made such a commitment to the fudging these numbers and assuring us all that hey, forget about it. Don't you worry yourselves. There now, Canada. It's all well in hand. We've got a firm grip on on the till. Uh, so you're you're talking about whether they're trying to fool themselves, let alone fool us. This has got to be a major major election. Uh, uh, issue, uh, but do you see uh, any of uh, possibly the conservatives? That would be as official opposition their job, if nothing else. But do you see any real fo- focused opposition on this number shifting game they're playing to try to deceive us that it's much more under control than it actually is? You would need a far more accomplished retail politician than we have at the head of the Conservative Party. To make that to make that work, you need someone who ca- who can speak with power and with resonance and with discipline. And I'm not seeing that. Um, I, I'm seeing a lot of worrying about global warming and and uh, homelessness and, and other things that should concern us. But these have become the front of the the, the debate. The money thing is off the is off the radar screen because the federal government has taken it off the radar screen. They've found a way to disguise what's happening now. And then later on, because things, if they can't last, don't last, then we'll, we'll have to face the, uh, the consequences. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mr. McFarlane, you've been around government and uh, the political process long enough to know that we Canadians have a rather tragic history of voting for the party that promises the most free stuff. And there's no doubt about who that is this time around. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to agree with your projection that a majority is almost inevitable. And I think also I'm agreeing with you, Laurie, that one of the reasons it's almost inevitable is due to a, a lack of firm, credible, ferocious opposition. Yeah, I, I, I agree entirely with that. The, the, the other thing I'll say, the, the last two or three times when we've gotten in, when the world has gotten into really bad circumstances, 2008, if you remember the, the whole uh, oh, um, sure. banking thing, these things come out, out of nowhere. One day, everything is just fine. And the next day, hell and wheels. And that's what's going to happen here. We will not see it coming, even though the, the signs are all there. But mm-hmm. we won't see it coming until it is too damn late. Mm. Well, I appreciate your taking some time out of your busy Monday afternoon, Laurie, to, uh, to have this discussion. I think it's terribly important that taxpayers and voters, no matter what political persuasion they may be, at least have a rudimentary understanding of the numbers. And if they're playing games with the basic numbers, then that's, that kind of shifty behavior ought to be noted. And thank you for doing so. I'll have one last say, and that is that as someone who did work in government, everybody I know who is still in government is has their back to the wall. They are they are at the, the end of their tether, and that is not getting that's not getting heard in the political um, debate. Um, it, it's it's behind the scenes, but you have no idea how desperate uh, desperate the civil service is. Interesting to know. I appreciate that. Laurie, thanks very much for making yourself available today. I, I enjoyed this column actually a couple of weeks ago when it first came out, and I, I've, I've been chasing producers for weeks to try and get a hold of you. I'm glad you finally were found, and uh, a terribly important conversation to have. Uh, and we'll talk again, especially once this election business gets straightened out and we have some targets to talk about. Thanks again for this afternoon.
Okay, Sterling, one last thing. I'm speaking here only for myself, okay? Indeed. I'm not, I'm not speaking as a Times columnist. You right, take care, exactly. my friend. Yep. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Laurie. And I did mention yep. that at the beginning of the program, too. You're speaking for yourself. This is not an editorial by the Times columnist. Sterling for Jill in the sunshine on a Monday afternoon. There's a lot of anti-police sentiment across North America right now, and that includes Vancouver, where Vancouver police members are increasingly finding themselves in situations where they have to deal with hostile crowds. We've seen an example recently on Friday night in English Bay. Here to talk about it is Sergeant Steve Addison from the Media Relations Department at Vancouver Police. Sergeant Addison, Steve, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us, sir. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, let me just uh, quote from the press release that you no doubt write. It's quite common for police officers to be surrounded by hecklers and people with cell phones whenever they're dealing with a member of the public. While the public has every right to watch us do our jobs, we can't have people interfering, obstructing, and putting us in danger. And that's what happened Friday night at English Bay. Flesh that one out for us, Steve. I saw it was Global carried it on TV, of course, and we saw a, a, the initial call was to break up a fight. Uh, the initial uh, call-out members uh, tried to do their job. Uh, I had to call for backup pretty fast. Take it from there, please. Yeah, we Friday night we got called for a large uh, fight uh, occurring on the promenade down in English Bay when our members uh, arrived on scene. Um, we essentially separated everybody and uh, tried to send people on their way. There was one individual who was continuing to cause problems, and he was arrested. Um, shortly after he was arrested, he began causing a scene, and they became very hostile and combative with, combative with our officers. And unfortunately, there was a large group of people that was yeah. nearby that really didn't have any information about what was going on that began to surround our officers and encroach upon them as they were trying to do their jobs. It created a very un safe situation as the members were not only dealing with a uh, a very difficult and challenging suspect who was under right. arrest but now also trying to deal with a uh, a very volatile crowd that was uh, affecting their ability to do their jobs properly so you know as i've been a police officer for a number of years uh, i get that people want to watch what we do and sometimes right. people want to videotape what we do by all means, they're welcome to do that, but we can't have people uh, encroaching on us, putting us in unsafe situations and interfering in our jobs. Well, yeah, because you described that as interfering, obstructing, and putting us in danger. What sort of, of, of things do where, do people do typically in those situations that you could describe as instruct, obstructing to the point of putting one of the members in danger? Well, the case that we had on Friday that a number of people have seen online through social media and video, various videos that have been posted or we had a, a very difficult suspect who was in handcuffs, who was causing troubles with our officers. And a crowd of people uh, surrounded the two officers who were doing their job. We had one individual who you can see on the, on the video um, who um, came in real close with his phone, got right in the face of one of the officers as the officers were struggling to deal with uh, the suspect and take him to the ground to control him. Uh, we see somebody who... Uh, almost tried to take a swing at the officer. You could see him cock his uh, his fist back in an assaultive uh, in an assaultive stance, and that's fairly common uh, practice for what we're seeing now. Wow. When our officers are out dealing with people, doing their jobs um, on the front lines, more and more often we're seeing people who are not just stopping to watch and take video, which is absolutely fine. And what, you know, it's, it's, there's absolutely no problem with that. It's a free country. You bet. Yep. 
but but getting uh, but interfering, obstructing us in our ability to do our job. But it not, doesn't just put us in danger; it puts the public in danger. We're yeah. also having a number of um, cases of officers. Twenty-one in the last month alone, where officers have been assaulted while they're doing their job. And these are mm. things like being spat at, kicked, punched. Uh, we've had officers hit um, uh, with vehicles. Uh, we've had officers who have had to go to hospital with injuries sustained in the line of work. And nobody else has to go to work and deal with this, whether you're a, uh, a teacher or a mechanic or a radio right. show host. Um, you, 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 don't have to, you don't have that fear when you go to work that somebody's going to assault you for doing your job. And police officers shouldn't have to um, uh, have that fear as well. Yeah, we, we the, the talk show hosts just get nasty emails, Stephen, <laughs> tons of those. But uh, I'm wondering, we don't have a lot of time here. Has all of this escalated since the George Floyd, George Floyd incident last year? Have you noticed a discernible increase? Yeah, so I don't have any scientific proof to, uh, of, of a correlation, but certainly we've seen th- that strong anti-police sentiment that really did start with the death of George Floyd. Yeah. Um, it's been exacer- exacerbated over the last uh, year and a bit by other high-profile in- incidents that have happened in the United States, and um, in, mostly in the United States, but also uh, in Canada as well. Um, and it's um, we just we just really need people to understand that when our officers are out there, they're trying to keep people safe. Uh, we have a job to do. People are more than welcome to watch, uh, but we 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 really uh, can't have people interfering, trying to trying to step in and putting our officers in danger, or uh, putting members of the public in danger. Sergeant Addison, thanks very much for this. A very timely reminder, Steve. We appreciate it very much. My keep pleasure. up the good work, sir. Thank you.